everybody. Welcome to Terra Talk. Today on the show, Kathy and I have a very special episode to give to you. Yes, we do. We interviewed Leah Sotilli, who wrote the book When the Moon Turns to Blood. And this is about Lori Vallow, Chad Daybill, and a story of murder, wild faith, and end times. This was a great interview. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought she was incredibly bright and knew her own self, just was very natural, very articulate. And that's what you would expect, of course, from an investigative journalist. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that made the difference for me as well. Because we can interview people who can either be quite dry or just very intellectualized. And although she has, I mean, her reputation precedes her, she's a lot of fun. And although she takes the work that she does very seriously, and that I think is clear in her book, she's a lot of fun to talk to. And I, I really yeah. enjoy, I felt like it was like just three friends sitting around having a conversation. Yeah, for sure. It felt like, you know, Friday nights talking intellectually at the salon over rosé or something. Um, okay, so so this book was inspired by John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven and Just Walter's Every Knee Shall Bow. When the Moon Turns to Blood explores modern-day survivalism and end-times extremism through the story of Lori Vallow and her husband, gravedigger turned doomsday novelist Chad Daybell. If you don't know this case, or even if you do, of course, it takes you through what the case was, And I hear from a lot of people that it's like, oh, no matter how much I read about this case, I don't understand what the heck happened. Mm -hmm. And I think this book will help you because it really turns the light on the extremist perspectives that Lori and Chad have. Sure. And then that really informs how you look at the case. And actually, this is the first time that Chad Daybell's brother, younger brother, actually has weighed in on Mm -hmm. any of the aspects of the case. So that was cool. And then just learning more about the two subcultures of the near-death experience authors and the culture of LDS preppers, which is an extremist part of Mormonism. So we don't want to indicate that this is all Mormons believe these things, but like the White House prophecy, White Horse, (laughs) White House, there's a Freudian slip, White Horse (laughs) prophecy, (laughs) this kind of thing, which is kind of an LDS urban legend. So it gets into that. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. She also does a did a podcast, actually, uh, one called Bundyville, which was nominated twice for a National Magazine Award. And she did one called Two Minutes Past Nine on BBC Radio 4. I haven't listened to that one yet, but the Bundyville one is really good. So really well produced awesome. and written. Yeah. So without any further ado, here is our interview with Leah Sotilli. Hi, Leah. How are Hi. you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's so great to have you here. The listeners have just heard us do a big intro on your book and how excited we were to read it and hear about it. This is obviously a hot case in our culture, and I feel like your book takes it on such a much deeper level and really talks about extremism and all of that. But I want to back up just really quickly to start. Like, I can't imagine any of our listeners aren't following this case uh, and the murders of, God, everyone around them, it feels like. But just tell us a little bit about the subject of your new book coming out and maybe perhaps why this topic, why now? Sure. So the book is, you know, in broad strokes, it's about the actions of Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. It's about what started in December 2019 with the, you know, declaration by local police in Rexburg, Idaho, that their ki- that Lori's kids were missing. Then Lori and Chad went missing. 
And the case sort of unfolded from there of wondering where were these kids and what was the reason that they were missing? And what, what kind of got me interested initially was pretty early on, someone had said that it was that perhaps Lori, the, the mother of the two children, her religious beliefs had something to do with their disappearance. And it kind of sent up alarm bells for me. It sounded like familiar territory that I'd reported on. And it turned out that it was very familiar. So the book really gets into not just the kind of play-by-play of the disappearances and then the case and, you know, everything around it. I want to be conscious of not giving any spoilers. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Even though a lot of people know a lot about the case, but it's it's about the case, but it's also just about the history of fringe Mormon ideology in the United States West. So we get into the culture of near-death experiences. There's the culture of you know, apocalypticism and and how people really take that idea of like, the world could end, we are the chosen people. And like, how far, like, when you believe that, how far do you take that? So that's kind of the broad brushes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it it sounds like that's what makes the book unique as well, is that no one has really gone into this with with this case as the backdrop. Sure. And that's kind of, I felt like there was an opportunity there with this case to, you know, it's been covered by amazing local and national journalists. But what I wasn't seeing was someone talking about how it fit into this kind of cultural divide that we feel in the United States right now and the political divide. And of course, you know, this is, this is a much kind of more bizarre take on some of that stuff but that that's kind of where it's the genesis of the idea was i really appreciated that part of the book specifically while we're on that topic i just wanted to highlight that so we don't get too far away from it and thinking of you know the time of trump not that this book is about him but like you were saying this culture do you feel that this solidified his beliefs it was an extension of his beliefs how much do you think chad even paid attention specifically to this part of the politics or do you think it's just part of the climate that we're in right now it's a great question i it's something that i kind of grappled with because i you know i was so interested in the case but it was really chad's writing that kind of drew me in in a big way initially he he just has such a trove of writing that he has done I think that Chad is emblematic of a more, maybe, but but Chad and Lori, I think they're more emblematic of like an everyday extremism that we see in America. So I think a lot of people probably think like extremists are, you know, the proud boys or storming the Capitol and things like that. And those of course are extremists, but I think that it's reductive to only think of extremism in that way, like it wearing a costume. And I think that Chad and Lori really have this sort of everyday extremist belief system that is, you know, informed and infused by the paranoia and fear in the culture right now. So, I mean, very clearly Chad has some extremist beliefs. I mean, his books really are kind of a, you know, how to guide to like conspiracy (laughs) theories in America. But, um, but, you know, he he was a big poster on Another Voice of Warning, which is, you know, a bubbling pot of extremism and extremist ideologies in America that are informed by that, you know, Mormon ideology. Absolutely. I mean, one of my question, my thought process while I was reading and, and reading about the case and 
revamping my thoughts about it after having kind of left it behind in my mind again. I was wondering how in your research, and so this is just a follow-up question to what you were saying, how Chad and Lori stack up against the culture of near-death experience folks and the LDS preppers. Are, are they just more of the same or are they unique in some way? Well, I think that they are unique in the way that by all accounts, it appears that they are violent people. So I don't think, I think it's, it's, you know, if all the charges against them are proven to be true, then, and there's a lot of evidence showing that they are, that shows that they're uniquely violent within that culture. I mean, I can't think of a, an example in the history of near-death experiences within the Mormon church and sort of the culture around those, those books where someone took those ideas and decided to be violent because of them. If you sever off that violence piece, I think that they, they were very much fit into the crowds at those near-death experience book talks and the prepper conferences and the, all that stuff. I think that they would have just appeared to be just like any other audience member. Yeah, that's how it seems. It seems like mm -hmm. the message is the same. It's just the actions, ending actions are the more unique I know we also know quite a bit about Lori's upbringing, too, and, and how much, I'm wondering how much you believe, obviously this is all theoretical, but looks like father may have had antisocial personality disorder, there was some stuff around his past and just corruption that went outside of just anything faith-based and how much that also contributed to just her personality style and who she became outside of this whole Mormon faith. Yeah, I think that her upbringing is by, you know, through my reporting and everyone I talked to, it was clearly turbulent. Now, I don't have anybody that could tell me specifically, you know, I, I really like there are months that I was like, did you ever hear somebody say her dad had X, Y, or Z, you know, pathologies or whatever. And I just, I never could get anyone to really say, you know, that her dad had those things. But what was very clear is that it was a really turbulent household. There are police records that talk about, you know, Alex Cox's ex-wife saying that there was, a, you know, real sexual tension between Lori and her brother. You know, obviously that's unique. But where a lot of my research relied on was Barry Cox, her father's own writings. I mean, the writing that it sort of informed the writing of my book is is just there's so much to look into and Barry issued you know he came out with a book uh, in March of 2020 talking about his fringe ideolo ideology his anti-government ideology and that was things that I recognized from my reporting so I think that what it did tell me is that these are ideas that Lori grew up hearing that the you know the LDS people are going to be the ones to save the constitution and that the world is going to end and maybe that was you know, Latter Day in Latter Day Saints is sort of informed by this idea that the world could end and the Mormon people will be the chosen ones. But to take that to that degree that, you know, Lori and Chad are leading the the purest people when the world ends and stuff, it seems like that came from a place that Lori was hearing from the time she grew up in Southern California, that maybe she heard these ideas from her dad and they were very normal by the time she reached her 40s. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of characterization of, of him being the 
quiet guy and her being the extroverted spark of light and all that stuff. It sounds to me like in some ways, maybe there's an I- the idea that she was just looking for that person to exercise those ideas with and that he was that wolf in sheep's clothing, so mm-hmm. to speak, that could ignite her ideas that she, from what you're saying, already knew about and just needed that kind of spark to get going. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, and you probably have said this to each other, but it's, what's so unique about this case is that it just, it's like this crazy meeting of these two people that, you know, couldn't, it it could have not happened, but it did. And so it's like, to me, I knew that I was never going to really understand it completely, but I could understand the circumstances that put these two people in the same room, these two people with the same ideas. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think Lori clearly is somebody who sought prominence and celebrity and maybe fame and recognition of her beauty in some way. But she clearly always wanted a husband that was a big deal in the church. And I think in Chad, she saw somebody that was very admired within the near-death experience prepper survivalist conference circle. I think the urban legend piece of this, I guess, Mm -hmm. is what we might call it, the white horse prophecy, I guess. You talk Mm -hmm. about that quite a bit, and I just wondered if you could maybe speak to that, lay that out a little bit so that those who don't know what that is might understand. So I'll give you a brief background on how that kind of came into my world. So I was doing uh, a a bunch of reporting in 2018, 2019 about a a group, the the Bundy family of Southern Nevada. They've had two standoffs with the federal government over their anti-government police systems. And I was working on stories on that case. And I started to hear people within the Bundy family use this expression that the constitution would be hanging by a thread. And I think I just Googled it and was like, oh, what is that? Like, I, it just, they, they said it enough that I started to recognize what it was. Then in that reporting, I was sort of told by people who'd been very close to the family that their anti-government actions, their standoffs with the government were informed by this thing called the White Horse Prophecy, which contains that phrase, the constitution will be hanging by a thread. It's essentially... I, you know, I'll put big air quotes, prophecy, it's a it's it's like a fake prophecy, that people within the Mormon church believe is real, not all people, but some people a very specific subset of people. It was a, a man told the church after Joseph Smith's death, that he, that Joseph Smith said to him told this prophecy to him, and the church has never acknowledged it as real. They've said, it's not real. This one guy, he just said it and like, you know, ignore it. But people really glommed onto it really quickly. And so they're kind of split off this group of people within the LDS church who, who decided that is real. And we are going to acknowledge it as prophecy, regardless of what our prophet says. And so what it does is it's, you know, it's a sort of convoluted fake prophecy. But the essential is that the LDS people will be the ones to save the constitution, will bring it back from the brink of ruin and kind of save society. So it infuses this kind of LDS exceptionalism. It's people saying like, we are the chosen people. We are the best Americans. It, it, you know, it, it kind of braids patriotism with religion in a way that 
that isn't really intended. So when it comes to the Lori and Chad story, you know, that phrase came up in, 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 uh, Lori's father's book. And then, uh, you know, I started to see Chad using some of that language on another voice of warning within some of his posts there. And, and in his books, it definitely was clear that he acknowledges that as maybe as I, you know, I don't know, I haven't talked to the guy, so he may think it's real prophecy, but it's clear that it's he suggests that he he believes in that. Can you say a little bit about you you talk about his near death experiences and some of the skepticism mm-hmm. around that and that it seems like that's also a theme within the faith as well. There was another woman I, apparently that had written a book that had you know Chad had worked with her. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so <laughs> Chad claims to have had two near-death experiences. His own brother told me he'd never even heard of this before. And one of the near-death experiences was when he and his brother both got kind of caught in like between rocks and the and the Pacific Ocean, the tide coming in. And Chad claims to have had a near-death experience and to have almost drowned. And his brother said, you know, when I talked to him, he's like, I don't remember it happening that way. And he never, he clearly got banged up by the, by the, you know, he was bloody. We had to take him to the hospital for stitches, but I don't remember him saying anything about it, that he died and came back to life. So convenient. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to have his own brother say like, I don't know, that seems weird. So there's two, the first near death experience was much earlier when he was a teenager and he went cliff jumping at this uh, park kind of in uh, North northeastern Utah called Flaming Gorge, notorious for people jumping off the rocks and either dying or being paralyzed afterwards. So they have signs there that say like, don't jump. But Chad went there and he jumped off the rocks and claimed to have had a near-death experience then. And then the later one was in the Pacific Ocean. So yeah, I mean, it seems like one could say they had a near-death experience. They could also say maybe they had a concussion. And I and I do wonder if that well, that was part of my, you know, yeah. maybe he got a concussion. <laughs> maybe when he went into the Pacific Ocean and got banged up against the rocks, maybe he his brain was already very sensitive and he got a concussion again. But, you know, he was very much excited about this idea of near-death experiences. And there, you know, people within this this culture that we're talking about, it's not all of the Mormon church, it's a specific fringe part of it. Mm-hmm having a near-death experience really kind of gives you a you kind of are in a new echelon like almost like a seer or an oracle yeah. and you can kind of claim that i can see beyond the veil to speak to our ancestors and and really kind of you know have this uh prophetic language that someone who doesn't have a near-death experience maybe wouldn't be able to say you get the special hat right yeah <laughs> Yeah. You get to wear the special hat at the service that yeah. exalt, exalts you above a little bit, right? I had, exactly. I had a client who was um, grew up in the Mormon faith, and she had left, and she did speak a lot about, and, and you ma- mentioned this a little bit when you talk about even the way that Chad destru- described women in his books, very flat and very, you know, mm. but she, her experience was that a lot of the, the leaders were sort of self-selected and, and they would just say, oh, I've been, you know, blessed by this or, or whatnot. And then the church would just be- have to believe that. And that, that's yeah. pretty remarkable because essentially anyone can claim they're, you know, secondhand of God. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one thing that I find, you know, fascinating and and a little scary about this, 
this idea of revelation that when you tell people anybody, you know, you can receive revelation. What you're saying is exactly right. You can say, well, I can receive revelation that I need to be a higher up in the church or that I have this direct line to God. I mean, the, the LDS church is pretty clear that if you, you are, you are, you know, you should receive revelation. If you get revelation, that's great. Share it with your wife, keep it in, in house. You know, it's not something to be public about. So that's where Chad was really egregious and that he clearly his books, you know, he would he would say at the beginning of his books, you know, this is something that was revealed to me. But, you know, I'm not saying it's prophecy. I'm just saying, you know, I was but but, you know, as time goes on, he really stops even hedging so much on. Well, you know, I'm just it, it was it was very clear that the longer he wrote the more excited people got about what he was saying, he started to be like, maybe I am a prophet. Maybe, maybe I will say that I am in the case, that, you know, in the event that I'm right, I'm going to look pretty smart here. So yeah, I think that that revelation well, piece is like, you know, people with French beliefs can really take that and run with it. Yeah. We see that over and over again. We taught, we have Kathy and I have tackled a few of the culty type folks, Manson mm. and Jones and et cetera. And I just, I hear that in there. It's like the, it's one thing to be in your own little world with your relationship and your family and to believe all of these things. But then that feeding of whatever it is, the narcissism, whatever it is that feeds off of others. And then that's how the beliefs become transformed into it doesn't always lead to action, but it can be transformed into actionable items, right. right? It's like, oh, others and getting that mirror from more and more and more people and then desiring and then efforting to get that like kind of narcissistic mirror from so many. And oh, I need I need that from everyone. I need everyone to believe. And then everyone does believe. And then the delusion and roll and roll and mm. roll. And then I think that fever pitch in some ways, psychologically gets them to the ability to have these kinds of actions. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm really glad to hear what you just said, because I think that, you know, it is, there is a history within the LDS church of people taking things really far, going super fringe, and then, you know, someone gets killed. That, that has happened a, 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 quite a few times. But what you said is, it, I'm, I was so glad you to hear you bring up, you know, Manson and things like that, because what I tried to do was, yeah, okay, clearly the spiritual beliefs infuse what happened here. But I haven't heard anybody talk about this case kind of in the context of Charles Manson, somebody who got other people to do his killing for him, or David Koresh, who was, you know, telling, leading this group and telling people what to do and having these really doomsday belief systems. So th that was one thing that I really, with that chapter called the book of revelation and in the book, I did want to say, you know, yes, religion, super important here, but also how does this fit into the broad spectrum of serial killers? And, you know, if these people are, are guilty of what they did, I mean, there's up to seven people who could be dead around them. Right. That masterminding. Mm -hmm. I mean, I immediately thought it's it's in that same vein. I think anybody who looks at the different cultures around cult leaders or gurus or any of that 
is going to see wild similarities. Mm-hmm. So I really love, because it's a, it's a thing I love to read about and am very interested in psychologically, is I see that's your mm-hmm. lens. Like that's where you're coming from as far as like, this is a little bit more about this and not so much about, you know, a familicide. Right. Yeah. And using the the faith as a vehicle or a justification too. And I think that we see, I, I was thinking, I was actually thinking David Koresh this entire time on you when you were describing Chad, because that is exactly what it is. Yeah. The psychopathology, you know, that we're not talking about because we're so focused on the religion. I think we see in Shannon brought up the gurus and things like that, the amount of spiritual narcissism that gets excused because there's this greater good apparently that we're doing this for. And we get lost in the, you know, the fact that there's this grandiose delusion going on that people have bought into. And I think that's why I was bringing Mm -hmm. up Lori earlier in her life. And like, clearly she met Chad and some of this is about their faith. But if you look at her upbringing, you look at, you know, the the skepticism around the death of her first husband or second husband or whatever it was. I mean, this is a woman who removed the faith. I mean, she's psychopathological and, and you're right. This isn't anything that has... I think even in her hearings and stuff, we focus more on a delusional disorder or, you know, um, you know, like a, a shared psychosis. But no one's talking about the historic. Like in, as a forensic psychologist, I look at historical risk factors, and that's why I bring up her father, and that's why I bring up all the stuff before she meets Chad. She didn't need Chad to be a psychopath. This stuff was already laid out well before, and. In his presentation, he's very covert and and very cool and calm and collected and and charming and almost plays like a victim and supportive and all of these things that very unassuming, which is where he's very skilled. And so, you know, especially women look at that and go, oh, he's this amazing, sensitive, patriarchal leader who has our best interests in mind. He's full of shit. (laughs) Well, and, you know, I, I think that one of the things that felt like such a big reveal was when I was able to finally get so many text messages between Chad and Lori and to be able to see who Chad really is. And, you know, I I completely agree with you, Kathy, like the, the illusion he was putting out there was just sort of like shy, sensitive, almost like low self-esteem, unsure of himself. But he had a text message that he sent to Lori about Charles Vallow's life insurance, where he said, I wonder if that changed after he had two bullets in in his back or two bullets in his chest. And I thought, oh, my God, like that is such a horrific thing to say to someone who has just lost their husband so clearly. I mean, it just revealed so much right there that this is not that was an, there, there was a there was a great act. And that's a big part of the book is like there was an act on both of their parts that people really bought, you know, that they couldn't believe that somebody, you know, Chad was very out and proud about these fringe beliefs, but because he was a nice guy, it seems like people were willing to to think about them more. Same with Lori. She was telling people, I thought about killing my husband, but you know, she seems like a great mom. She's super pretty. And like the kind of gal you want to be friends with, that really acted as a screen. Yeah, you could see that. their proverbial mask slipping through parts of, of this. And then they, whoop, you know, they put it back on and people would just, it, you absolutely. know, there's that cognitive dissonance, right? Like people would just pretend they didn't see that because they needed to believe what was there. But if you really look mm-hmm. at this trajectory, like the mask slips quite a bit. And you mentioned that 
throughout the book, like these parts of Chad or these parts of Lori that come out. And it's like, how is that? And then the people, the couple, the few people that do end up challenging them get excommunicated from their life. It's like, oh, you know, bless yeah. your heart, but, you know, clearly not a follower, yeah. all that patronizing. Yeah. I mean, I found it to be so courageous that one of Lori's friends said to her, came back to her house after they'd all had dinner together. And she had said, uh, Charles, she'd been, Lori had been talking about putting like Vicodin, I think, crushing up Vicodin into Charles' protein shakes in the morning. And Alex was talking about wanting to kill him. And this friend came back the next day and said, look, I am not okay with you talking that way. And if something happens to these people, I'm going to call the police. And Lori was like, no, 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 no. I, I, you know, I, I, you miss, I was just being dramatic, but then boop, cut her off. She cut that woman off from her life. And I think that that woman feels horrible now that like she saw that maybe she could have gone to the cops before something happened. Right. And there was that, uh, that loyalty, like she was still trying to be, not betray her, but at the same time she's sitting there going, okay, something's wrong. Like this is I to do with this. Yeah. yeah. Right. And we see that over and over again, too, just in the course of doing this podcast over the last few years and looking at different serial killers and digging into them one by one and seeing all the commonalities, it just starts to be like more of the same. And that's one of the things that we almost always see, as you know, is that they were nice or I like them or they were a good mom or they were good at their job or whatever it is in these organized, more organized personalities, you see that over and over again. Of course, you get the disorganized personalities like the Ramirez or sure. whatever, and very predictable, not fitting in in society, not social, all of this. But this, this is, we see this so commonly in the people who rise to this kind of infamy, that they were nice or what have you. And I was curious, I know that Chad's brother was a part of this book and I'm and I know that that's one of the unique qualities of your book as well is and I did wonder what what it was like to to get that piece of the puzzle going and how that fit in and and sort of if there was something that surprised you about what he had to offer. Yeah, I mean, so Brad Daybell, I mean, I had a lot of time to talk to him and and really did not feel good about writing a book without having somebody close, you know, Lori, everyone close to her is kind of involved in this. So they're either Alex is dead, her parents won't talk, you right. know, the sister won't talk. You know, there's it's it's a lot harder to get close to her, but I really wanted to feel good about writing about Chad. So I was, you know, you gotta ask. That's my job as a reporter. You gotta ask, hey, will you talk? Will you talk? And you know, if you know everybody's gonna say no. I found an email for Brad. I emailed him and say, Hey, will you talk? Here's the kind of work that I do. And he said, sure. And I, I was actually super surprised. So what I tried to do was just go into that and just say like, look, you know what's going on. I know what's going on. What's your take on it? And he was very candid about it. You know, he was really surprised. I mean, how can you not be that your brother is involved in this wild scenario? But but what what he told me was that he had had a hunch something was going on. He just didn't know what. Him and Chad were never real close. There's a pretty big age difference between them. But he said what tipped him off was at Tammy's funeral. Chad took him aside and said, you know, hey, I'm going to get married. Like, and Brad was like, now? Like, you got to wait. And Chad's like, no, 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 I can't wait. This woman is amazing. I have to marry her now. And he was like, 
<laughs> hang on, pump the brakes. Like that, you know, even for him would not be super close to his brother. He could recognize like, whoa, what is going on? And then he also said there were a lot of people at that funeral that seemed to be kind of from this like prepper conference survivalist circles that he was like, why are these people here? And it kind of, you know, he knew his brother was a writer, but it snapped into sort of perspective for him. Oh, these are the people that read my brother's books. Oh, okay. It's so I think those combo that was, was a big reveal, you know, to him and I, and you know, I, I was with a lot of people that are in a sensitive position like him, I, you would think, you know, okay, look, I'll talk to a reporter once and that's it. But I kept calling Brad and he kept picking up the phone and we kept talking about it. And I, I think that he, he was trying to figure out what the hell was happening too. And, you know, from what he said to me was like, yeah, my brother is in jail and he thinks that he's a prophet and I don't know what the hell is going on. Right. He's trying to find his own answers about. And I think that, you know, it's, I think that it's with Lori, there is, you know, everybody around her was like privy to what was going on. I think in a way that, that Chad's family wasn't. And I wanted to be really careful that, you know, you see in the discussion of this case, it's like people just villainize everyone. Are you related to Daybell? Screw you. Are you related to Val? Screw you. There are people around them that are questioning and horrified and, and, and also want to see justice for what happened in this case. So yeah, Brad was, was very intelligent and very uh, confused and, and really kind of acted as a spokesperson for right. his family because his Chad's parents sound like they are just destroyed by what happened. I was about to say it was probably quite cathartic for him to talk to you about it. I, I always wonder that and hope that that can happen. I felt that that was the case, especially with Tylee's best friend, Vicia. You know, when we would talk, she would say, you know, it's I just haven't wanted to talk about it, but it kind of feels good to talk about it. And so, yeah, I think maybe it's, every now and then, I think when somebody understands my approach as a reporter, they'll sort of say, like, realize, like, I'm not totally coming with judgments. So I'm going to hold people to account if they feed me a line. But in this case, you know, <laughs> the best friend of Tylee and Chad's brother who lives a few states away, like, I think they're both just like, oh, my God, I'm so confused. And I'm sort of in this, the middle of this case and don't want to be and it's good to right. talk about it. The last thing I really wanted to ask you about, and, and Kathy, jump in if you have any other questions after this, was I know that there was a piece of this where you came to a perspective or just a thought process that you mentioned a little bit um, near the end of the book. There's no spoilers here. But just about our fixation on fear and how this extremism and the societal kind of numbness to death and violence. And I thought that might be an interesting thing for us to just talk about for a couple minutes because our listeners in general are horror film fans and also true crime fans and are like ourselves, obviously we're hosting it. We're interested in those things too, are, are drawn to understanding our uh, fixation mm -hmm. on fear and our, and, and how it can be both psychologically working stuff out and healing, but also can go to these extremist uh, negative, violent places. And so I just wondered if you had anything. Yeah, I think that, you know, there were 
I started writing this book in March of 2020. So this is how I chose to spend the pandemic. And I had to, I had to really right. think hard about what that said about me that I was like, gonna kick up my feet in a hammock and read some Chad Daybell books today. Like it just, you yeah. know, and that, that, you know, some of those personal sort of essays that are in the book about like, it was me kind of grappling with why am I so attracted to learning about this and, and to thinking about these horrible things. I think the conclusion that I really come to at the end of the book is less personal and more societal that when you have a whole society that is like fearful, maybe I'll back up. I mean, I think that what you do, what I do is like trying to understand on a micro level, like why did Charles Manson kill? Why did Lori do what she did? You know, why does Chad believe what he believed? Mm -hmm. But they are a part of this sort of societal fear that I think we've all been feeling for a long time, you know? And what I think I've learned in all the years that I've been writing about extremism, you know, militias, violent preachers, you know, things, all these kind of subsets of American culture, I've come to realize that like extremism sort of lies in wait, waiting for fear. So when, when people get afraid enough, that's when these ideologies or these ideologues suddenly are very attractive. They offer options. So I don't really know Lori's place in that, but I can tell from the pages of Another Voice of Warning, from the interviews I've done about people who are fans of Chad's work, that they felt some sort of answers were being offered through his books. And those answers were like, right. hey, if you're faithful Mormon, you're going to get saved. So yeah, I think that's kind of the conclusion that I had is it's not a super mm -hmm. satisfying one, but I think it's just like, you know, sort of trying to remember that we have to draw boundaries on our own fears. Because if those go wild and you're like, I'm so scared for my life. And this person is saying, if I do this thing or that thing, you know, mm -hmm. I'll be, I'll feel better. Right. That culture of fear. And I, and I like that you have a, a self-acknowledgement of, I chose to, you know, look at this and spend my time while being fearful of life and what was happening outside. I chose this topic and yeah. here we are. And, and just, you know, wh which is also in line most likely with your personality and your chosen sure. profession and digging into things and that felt uh, goal oriented and gave and me a project. That, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Have a project. project. Come out of it with something to show for it, you know. <laughs> but I think in a lot of ways, it's similar to what you and your fans are are into. Is like you, you know, if you if you for hone sure. in on what you know this one serial killer, this cult leader believes, you can kind of like you can decide what's reasonable, what isn't for your own fears. Like absolutely, extrapolate it mm -hmm. to yourself and to the to the world at large, etc. Well, I'm just really excited for your book to come out. I know that it comes out this month. Very exciting and, and so topical. And I hope that as we go into their trials in next January, that now they're being going to be tried at mm -hmm. the same time, that Chad and Lori, that that enough people get a hold of your book and enough people can look at it from this perspective so that we go into it as a culture sort of acknowledging the bigger ideas that are there and that it's not just about these two people being tried but but as a culture what we're saying about what we believe in and what we care about and what we fear and all of that I just really hope that this book can help to inform yeah. that so that it's not just a sensationalist trial same yeah thank you it was so fun to talk to you both I appreciate it Thank you.
I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that so much. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we said it before, but we really did enjoy talking to Leah, and we very much hope you go out and get her book. It's When the Moon Turns to Blood. It's out this month, June 21st, so it's very soon. You can pre-order it. It's going to be for sale everywhere you can buy books, Amazon, etc., wherever you live. I know we have a lot of international people, so just look for it. June 21st, 2022, When the Moon Turns to Blood, it's Leah Sotilli, spelled L-E-A-H and S-O-T-T-I-L-E, Leo Sotilli. So thank you so much to Leah. We had such a great time. Hope to talk to you again. Hope more projects are in your future. This has been an episode of Terror Talk, and my name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.